Hebrews chapter 8, when you have that, if you'll stand with me this morning in reverence to God's word. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The writer here says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful upon their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You may be seated. This passage here in all of chapter 8 that we're going to look at this morning talks to us about the ministry of Jesus. You know, when we think about ministries or we think, about, we think about ministries that we have, we would say that I have a preaching ministry or that we have a youth ministry or that we have a missions ministry. Well, this passage describes the fact that Jesus Christ has a ministry. He is actively doing something. He is actively engaged in ministry. And you and I, as the beneficiaries of this new covenant that he describes to us, this new promise that has been made between us and God, we have Jesus Christ as the minister of that covenant. He is the one who is actively engaged in making that covenant happen and keeping those promises that God has spoken This morning, I want us to look at the conditions of Jesus' ministry and the benefits for us of the ministry that Jesus has. Because if 
you and I do not know and do not take advantage of the benefits that God has promised us, then what good are they? I mean, what good are they if we never take advantage of them? And you might say that you do, that you, you know what God has done for you, you know what Christ has done for you in, in living a perfect life and dying on the cross for your sin. That you understand that. But as I began to look at this passage, it became very clear to me that part of these benefits that we have, because Christ loves us, because God has shown mercy and grace and love to us, we don't even take advantage of. As a matter of fact, most of the Christians that I meet don't take advantage of probably what is the biggest benefit that we'll look at this morning. And your life is different because you don't take advantage of it. Now this is not, as you probably well know from a year of this type of thing, this is not me you know, going all Joe Osteen on you and, and I'm going to tell you that life's great and all that stuff. But he describes something in this passage that will honestly change the way we live if we take advantage of it. So first, before we get to the benefits, let's look at the conditions of Jesus' ministry. Under what conditions does he minister? What does it look like? How does he act and what does he do? If you think back to last week as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we were told about this priest and we are told that it's fitting, this is verse 26 from chapter 7, that it was fitting that we should have a high priest who is holy and innocent and unstained, separated from sinners and exalted high above the heavens. And I, I told you last week that those things describe the opposite of us. We are the opposite of those things. So it's fitting that we have that type of priest. Well, now as we're told about the conditions that he ministers under, we see that they continue to be the opposite of what was there before. This priest, now we see in verse 1, has been seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is the first place in the scriptures where we're told about Jesus' current position. Where is he at now? We, we know if you go back to the book of Acts that he ascended into heaven. We, we see that very clearly. But where is he? Well, here, the author of Hebrews tells us he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is in the place of power. If you look at ancient kingdoms, you always would have the king sitting on his throne. And he would be you know, up somewhere and he would be in his throne room. Well, if someone was lucky enough to be seated at his right hand, that was a position of great power. As a matter of fact, we see that in the Gospels when James and John go to Jesus and they've got this totally wrong conception about what Jesus is going to do. They believe that he was going to be some type of political leader that was going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem and he was going to sit on a throne. And so they come to him and they say, hey, can we sit on your right and left? As a matter of fact, even their mama tried to get in on it and try to help them, you know, to get this position because, I mean, it, it would be good, I guess, to be the mother of those sitting on the right and left hand. They misunderstood it. Jesus wasn't going to be sitting on a throne. Rather, he was going to be going and sitting beside the throne, beside his, 
heavenly father. So Jesus there in that place, in that place of prominence and power, carries out his ministry. And verse 2 tells us that he is a minister in the holy place. That unlike the priests of this world, he ministers in the true tent, verse 2 says. One that the Lord has set up, not man. If you go back to the Old Testament and you remember what happened when Moses came off the mountain, he had these instructions to build this tabernacle. And it was going to be this great large tent. And in that tent, everything had to be set up in a particular manner. Everything had to be set up very specifically just like God had, show, had shown to Moses. And so it was important that everything in there was very valuable. There was gold everywhere. Because this was going to be the place that God would dwell among his people. We see that later reflected when the temple is built. Everything was ornate. Everything was beautiful. Why? Because it was supposed to be, as we see here in verse 5, a reflection or a shadow of the heavenly things. So Moses comes back and he gives them all these instructions to build this tabernacle and everything had to be wonderful. And then when the temple was built, everything had to be in a very particular manner. Even down to the point that there were some people who were not allowed in certain parts of the temple. And when you got into the innermost part, this place that I've talked about plenty of times, the Holy of Holies, only one guy in the whole country was allowed to go in there and he was only allowed to go in there once a year. And it was the place where on top of the Ark of the Covenant between the two, the two angels that had been built as they had been crafted out of gold, it was between those two places where the sacrifice was made and the blood was sprinkled and the presence of God was. Well, we're told that Jesus, he didn't go there. He didn't get down off the cross and walk into Jerusalem and go to the temple and go into the holiest place and make a sacrifice. We're told he went to the place that all of that stuff, that tent, that temple, all of that stuff had supposed to have been a reflection of a greater place. So instead of going to the reflection, the copy, he went to the real deal. He went to the place that it reflected. It's just like the fact that some of many of you are teachers, and if you uh, you might have a copy of, say, the Declaration of Independence hanging on the wall in your classroom, and it costs you like four bucks at a teaching store, eight bucks, I don't know, whatever it costs you. It's not the real deal. They keep the real deal in Washington. They don't put it on the walls of classrooms where little hands can tear it up. There's a reason for that. Because the real thing is valuable. The real thing means something. The real thing has all the value and worth, and it's irreplaceable. So just as this tent that they had worshipped in, just as this temple that they worshipped in had some meaning and some value, it was still just a copy. So all these priests, when they came in to worship and when they came in to sacrifice, they were, they were using a copy. And if you know anything about copies, if you use a copy machine, when you make copies, every time you copy it, it gets a little bit less like the original. So Jesus bypasses all of those things. And it says here in verse 2 that he goes to the true tent 
one that the Lord has set up in heaven, not one that has been set up by man. And he goes there to make gifts. What kind of gifts is he making? Well, he gives one gift. We saw it in the last chapter, in chapter 7, verse 27. He says, He has no need like those high priests offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he did what? What does it say? When he offered up himself. So Jesus goes to heaven and he's going to offer up the gift to God. And he doesn't offer up the blood of a lamb. He doesn't offer up the blood of a bull. He doesn't offer up some fragrance to God, some incense offering. What does he do? He goes to God and he offers up himself. He gave himself for you. He didn't go find something else. Again, we think about the priest in Jesus' day. What could they offer? Well, they offered whatever animal you bought them. Whatever animal you brought from home, whatever animal you bought when you got there, that's what they offered. You think about when Jesus went into the temple, he, he gets so angry. Why? Because they're exchanging money there because it has become so easy. You just brought in some of your money and you, you gave it to them and they gave you that animal. Think about how different that was than the one who raised the animal from the time it was born. Kept it pure and unblemished. And brought it and offered up the, not, not something you had bought down the hallway, but the, the family pet that you had raised. The, the lamb that you had raised from birth. The, the bull that you had raised from birth. You brought that and sacrificed that. See, their worship had become cheap and easy. It, it had become ugly. And so Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the tables because he is angry that it has become about the money. It has become about the sacrifice instead of, he, he says his house, his father's house will be a house of, of prayer, not, not a house of exchanging this, this money, this cheap worship that they were doing. So instead of offering a sacrifice in a place where cheap worship happened, Jesus goes to heaven and he offers himself. Verse 4 is, is very strange to me when you first read it because it says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. As if somehow Jesus could not do this here, which makes sense. There were already priests to do what, what needed to be done on earth. There were already priests that you could go to and they would, they would kill an animal for you or you would kill the animal and they would make the sacrifice. And, and nobody needed to do that anymore. It had been taken care of. So instead of doing his work here, when Christ dies on the cross, he goes to the Father and there stands as our priest. He doesn't go stand in the temple that's constrained. But he goes to the, his heavenly Father, and there he stands for us. There he ministers for us. See, the ministry of the priest was limited. It was limited to the people of God in Israel. But Jesus offered gifts not for just one group of people in the Middle East, but the Bible tells us that he offered this gift for the world. That God in his love for the world, for us who are sitting here this morning, for those who are worshiping all across the world, 
for those who have never even heard his name. Christ went and made this gift, made this offering for all those people. It's the condition of his ministry. It's what his ministry looks like. His ministry is worldwide. And while the priests of the world serve a copy and a shadow, something that Moses was given instructions about, Christ's ministry is vastly superior to theirs. Look, he says in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, or the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Christ's ministry is so much better that it's basically indescribable. It's more excellent with better promises. See, this first had flaws, and, and it, was, it was enacted by men who were messed up. You, you don't want to put your trust in somebody else. You, you don't want to put your faith and hope in, in somebody else, but that's what they had to do. And yet Jesus puts in place this, this new covenant, this new promise with that's frankly better. As a matter of fact, it, because the first had flaws, we're told here, it made the second necessary. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But there was. And so Jesus does something better. And I think we all can understand that, and we all can agree with that. And if you've been through much of this book as we went through it, you see that. But what are the benefits of it? What are the benefits of the fact that Jesus has given us a new and better covenant? Well, we see that beginning in verse 8. The author here in the book of Hebrews goes to the Old Testament to tell us about the benefits of Jesus' ministry. He goes to the book of Jeremiah, verses, or chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and he tells us how vastly more excellent Jesus' ministry is. And he has to do this because I believe he's beginning to deal with people who are trying to go back to the old way. I think he is dealing with a group of people who were trying to do it on their own. You think with the old way of doing things, you had something that was tangible that you could hold on to. You would know, hey, I went once a month and made a sacrifice, or I went uh, once a quarter or once a year and made a sacrifice. And so he tells them that that, that is of no benefit to them. Now, that doesn't seem necessarily relevant to us today, but I want to promise you that there are a lot of people who would rather have the knowledge that they could do a certain group of things and that would take care of their problem. It's like the person who gives 10% to their church and believes that that takes care of it. It's like the person who comes to a certain number of services and believes that they're secure. That's not how it works. That's the old way. He says in the last verse of this chapter that the old way is fading. The old way has been rendered obsolete. It's growing old and is ready to vanish. 
And yet, I would tell you that a lot of Christians would still like to have it that way. They would still like to think they did good enough. I remember that feeling in college. What do I need to do to get the grade? How many points? If I can just earn enough. Well, friends, we can't treat our Christian walk like that. And so he writes these verses to remind them that if you go back to this old way of doing things, if you go back to trying to make it on your own and work your way to God, to making enough sacrifices and saying enough prayers or whatever that you can get there, it's not going to work because it has no power to save you. And that's why he uses Jeremiah because if they weren't believing him, they might believe the prophet from the Old Testament. Because here's the one who they're saying they believe these things to be true. And Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 writes about a new covenant. Paul dealt with this and I believe he is too. So what does it look like? Well, the new covenant that he describes in verses 8 and 9 and into 10 is not like the previous one. See, in the previous one, if you look there in verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. Think about that. We want to tell people that God loves them and God cares for them no matter what they're going through. Well, he says in the old way of doing things, that's not the case. God says, under the old covenant, under his old law, under the old way of doing things, if you didn't listen to him and you didn't do what he said, then he had no concern for you. Go back and look at what happens. How many times in the Old Testament did his people not listen to him and all of a sudden here comes an army and they conquer them? All of a sudden here they go into battle, they think they're, they, they've got it all together, but they've not been listening to God and they're defeated. How many times do they try to accomplish something, but they haven't been listening to God, and they fail miserably? He said, so when they did not continue in my covenant, I showed no concern for them. That's pretty despairing, isn't it? To think that at every moment you need to have it all together, at every moment you need to be doing the exact right thing, at every moment, you need to be listening to God at every point that he's ever said, or he might not show no concern for you. That's kind of frightening, because unless you're very much unlike me, I'm not constantly doing what I'm supposed to be doing. We fail, and we mess up, and we fall short. And so under the old way of doing things, God has no obligation to show love, mercy, to you. He, he has no obligation because it was built on what you did. He said, but I'm doing away with that because it didn't work. Because people don't listen. Because people fail. People fall short. So, so what's going to be different? He gives us three things. Three ways in which the new way is different. And friends, they're all extremely significant. The first is in verse 10. He says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So verses 8, 9, they're the old way of doing things. Here, verse 10 starts the new with three things. Here's the first. I will put my laws into their minds. 
and write them on their heart. The previous law was written on tablets of stone. You know, Moses goes up to the mountain. God writes these commandments. After that, God gave a large number of commandments, a large number of laws that were corresponding with those. And they were about what you should eat, what you should wear, things you should do, things you shouldn't do. And frankly, it was quite complicated. And and by the time we get here, where the writer of Hebrews is writing just a few years after Christ, they've gotten even more complicated. Because people were so worried about breaking the laws of God, they were so worried about not listening to what God had said, that they had made laws on top of the laws, on top of the laws, to keep you from breaking the other laws. So if you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath day, if you weren't supposed to work from when the sun went down on Friday till the sun went down on Saturday, well, they made other laws to make sure you didn't even get close to working. If you think that the laws of our country are complicated, if you think the tax code is complicated, go back 2,000 years and live under Jewish law. You just couldn't do stuff. Because they didn't want you to even get close to breaking the law, but because what could happen? So I showed no concern for them, declared the Lord. Well, nobody wanted to get to that point, so they wanted to keep you from it. But God says under this new way of doing things, I'm not going to write this law on tablets of stone, but I'm going to take my law and I'm going to write it in your heart and on your mind. It's a different place to put it, right? Because... Quite honestly, when you've got to memorize all of these things that have been written on tablets of stone, you've got to remember all of this. As a matter of fact, like he says here, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to do something different. You're not going to have to go out and teach people these things as much because I'm going to put them on their law. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't teach people. It doesn't mean we don't instruct people on the things of God, but his law, his goodness and grace and mercy and what he wants for us is written in our hearts. And that's a different place. Trust me. It's a very different place. God speaks to us. He guides us and instructs us it's, it's not about what was written on a tablet that, that we have to go and learn. It's what he has written in our hearts. And from that, that gives us this desire to learn his word. It gives us that desire to do the right thing, to follow him and listen to him. Not out of some obligation on stone, but because of what he has placed in our heart and our mind when we know him. See, now that the law has been written on our heart and written in our mind, we have the opportunity for the second benefit, which is closely related to it, that now we can have intimacy with God. God, if you look in the Old Testament, God was not personal. God was not a a personal God. God was a national God. He was the God of the people of Israel, but, but he was not personal. You, you didn't have a personal relationship with God. As a matter of fact, you, you couldn't get to God. 
You had to go and find somebody to get to God for you. You had to find somebody to stand in between you and God. There was no personal relationship. But here he describes it under this new covenant. There is a personal relationship. One that we often take for granted in being able to call upon God and and ask God for things and listen to God. It wasn't available. But in verse 10 he says... After he puts the laws in their minds and on their hearts, he says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says later in verse 11 that they will know, or they shall all know me. God, the God of the universe, the God who made everything and is everything, wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't expect you to come on a certain day of the week and ask someone to have a relationship with him and somehow communicate that back to you. He calls on you to have a relationship with him. And he offers it to you. It's not as if it was some burden. It's not as if it was some hardship. The God who made everything cares about you and wants to be with you. When we call on God, we, we don't get some type of pre-recorded message on an answering machine. But God is there. God is present in our life. Again, I guess since most of us don't come out of a background that looks at God as far away, it's harder to understand this concept of God being personal. But go and investigate the other religions of the world. Go investigate what they say and what they teach about whoever it is that they claim to be a deity, whoever it is that they claim to be God. You're not going to find personal relationships. It's not there. It's not offered. See, we've, we've, we've got it all. We've got a God who has given us his word. He has given us his instructions. But he didn't give them to us and then leave us. They didn't appear in a a vision and then he's never to be heard from again. He, He gives us his word, but then he tells us that the only way that we're going to know him and know his word is by continually communicating with him. The power in these words are not available without God's instruction. Oh, you can go through and figure out the history, and you can go through and figure out timelines, and you can do all of that stuff, but it it doesn't mean anything except for God speaking through it. He's personal. He's personal with us. And him being personal has led to the third thing, which we see in verse 12. How can God be personal? We looked last time, God's very different than us. Jesus is very different than us. He he doesn't act like us. We sin and he doesn't. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God can be personal with us because he has removed our sin. This isn't temporary forgiveness. It is forever. This isn't a sacrifice that we have to go make As he said back in chapter 7, he has no need, talking about Jesus, like those high priests offer sacrifices daily. Why? Because he's already offered one. 
He has offered you forgiveness. Your sin, your disobedience, my disobedience, the disobedience of everyone who's ever lived is what has kept us from God. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. When they sin in the garden, it separates them from God. He used to what? Walk in the garden with them. They had intimacy with him. They were together. And sin separated that. And the old covenant did not fix that. Because you would go and they would make a sacrifice for you and the blood of that animal would cover your sins in the past. But what happened? When you walked out of that place and you're walking back home, because remember, they walked everywhere. And you got a long walk and the kids are being loud. And they're going nuts because they were doing it 2,000 years ago and they're still doing it. And you started yelling at your kids. And then you got into it with your spouse because you're yelling at their kids and they're just being kids and you're going, guess what? You've sinned again. And that sin's not forgiven. Because you've left the altar. You've left that place where you killed that animal and that animal didn't cover those future sins. That animal that died in your place there on that altar, it didn't cover anything that was ahead of you. So what do you do? You, you turn around and go back? You make it sacrifice again? And guess what? On the way back, the same thing happens again. And it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again, and you continue to sin because that's what we do. We continue to fall short of what God wants us to do. We continue not to obey Him. We continue not to do all the things He's called us to do. We continue to do that. And how do we have any hope? It's because He says right here, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Past, present, future, forgiven. Covered by Christ. Forgiven through His blood. The first is unable to do that. He says in verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The first one could not forgive you permanently. The first one did not even offer that. It was not available to you. But the new covenant does. And because it does, it, it causes the other one to begin to vanish. It's ready to vanish away. So I want to ask you this morning, if you have taken advantage of Christ's ministry, and, and the one I really want to, to harp upon here is the, the third one that I said. Do you live in the freedom of having your sins forgiven? There is a huge burden if we continue to dwell on our sin. There is a huge burden that is unnecessary if we allow the burden of sin to remain on our life. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not conscious of our sin. It doesn't mean that the Bible has not called us to repent of our sin daily. But if your sins have been forgiven, if God has forgiven you of what you have done, 
Why would we continue to allow that to burden us? See, the old law offered just temporary forgiveness. Your sins would add up again. You would need new forgiveness. But it's not so with Christ. See, I think too many Christians try to have Christ sacrifice himself again every day. You may need to be in a state of repentance. You may need to constantly be turning your heart back to God. But as a believer in Christ, you do not need to be forgiven again. God has already blotted that sin out. He's forgotten about it. It's gone. It's been dealt with. It's been taken care of. And yet we still carry that burden. Can I, can I tell you that, that, that some of you may not be being effective for God because you're carrying a burden of sin? That, that Christ has already taken off of you and placed on himself. And yet for some reason... You, because you're holding on to that sin, because you're letting that burden continue on you, you, you're continually trying to put Christ on the cross again. As if it wasn't enough. As if it wasn't taken care of. We, we continually try to do that. We continually try to allow sin to become our excuse for not doing things for God. Can I tell you that the times when I'm not burdened by sin and focused on Christ are the times when I'm most effective? And the times when I'm most effective are the times when I'm least likely to fall back into sin? We have allowed this desire to continually live in and deal with our sin to keep us from serving and living in God's presence. But friends, maybe the greatest gift that we have been given in the ministry of Christ as he sits at the right hand of his Father. As we were told in the last chapter, he daily makes intercession for us as he is pleading our case before God. Is that our sins are forgiven. They're gone. He remembers them no more. He's taken his law and he has written, on, written it on our hearts. We have an intimate relationship with him and our sin has been forgiven. Some of you, some of you today, some of you right now, need to stop carrying that burden around. It is so worthless. It is so meaningless. And it so demeans what Christ did on the cross. You think about the Apostle Paul and think about the things that he did before he knew Christ. Think about the way that he lived and the way that he acted. The, the fact that he was killing Christians. And when he was forgiven, it was gone. He called himself the, chiefs, the chief of sinners. And yet, look at his effectiveness for the gospel. Look at his missionary work. Look at his preaching and his theology. Look at, at what he did for the kingdom. Maybe today you need to unload that burden. 
There's some of you here in a crowd this size. I know there's some of you who don't know Christ, and so there's no benefits for you of his ministry. There's none. There's no forgiveness. There's, there's no joy. There, there's, there's none of this, but it's available to you. You can't take advantage of it without turning to him. You can't take advantage of it without turning from your sin and your direction and the way that you're going and doing it your own way and trying to get there yourself. But if you turn from that and turn to Christ, there's hope. And all of these benefits are yours. You have a God who has spoken to you, who loves you, wants to have a relationship with you, and unlike anyone else in this world can do, he'll forgive you. I was having a discussion, I want to close with this, I was talking to somebody lately about some of the court cases that had been going on, and you've seen them on the news and that sort of thing. And this person was kind of upset because they had expected that some of these people would have been convicted. And she said, you know, I can't believe that, that a jury declared these people innocent. I said, let me stop you. I said, because they didn't. I said, they, they said they weren't guilty. They couldn't prove them guilty. That's all a jury can do is say whether you're guilty or not guilty. They can't say you're innocent. He's forgotten our sins. They're gone. We stand before him not only not guilty, but we stand before Christ innocent. As if we had never sinned. As if we had always done exactly what God had said. Because that's all that God's going to accept. We stand before God because of Christ. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You're innocent. They're gone. As if they never happened. Friends, that's how we need to live. It's the only way we're going to find joy in Christ. It's the only way we're going to be effective for the kingdom. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the day that you've given us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you that we have a new covenant, a new promise that you've made to us in Christ. It's a promise that Christ holds for us in heaven. It's a promise that he has written on our hearts and in our minds. It's a promise that allows us to have intimacy with him. And God, we have the great promise that our sin is, sins have been forgiven. God, as we stand here this morning, in just a moment as we begin to sing, God, there are going to be those who carry a burden of sin that is not theirs to carry. It's an area of their life that they have not given over to you. And God, you demand it. You went to the cross to carry that burden of sin, not to, to place it upon us, not to allow us to carry it any further. You, you command that we give that burden to you. And God, there's some people here who need to give that to you this morning. God, I just pray that you're speaking to their heart. And God, there are others here who don't know you. God, but they need you. They need you this morning. And so God, during this time, I just pray that you would call on them to respond. They don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers, God, but I will gladly share with them what I can. But God, I pray that you speak. You show them that they need you this morning, that they, 
They need your love and compassion and grace. God, I thank you that you're good, that you're good to us, even when we don't deserve it. You, you shower us with your love and mercy and grace, and I pray that you continue to do that this morning. As I pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you would stand with me, we're going to sing. As we sing, I would just call upon you to respond to what God's Word has said. It's not what I have said. I, I, I know I've not said it well this morning, but God's Word speaks, and He speaks clearly. And so I would just ask that you would respond as we sing. <laughs>